remind everybody, no pitching, um, teaching. And Julia, you want to maybe just introduce yourself and then we'll uh, uh, kick off with your slide. Sure. Sounds good. Thanks, Mark, for the opportunity. And hi, it's, it's great to see you all. Um, my name is Julia monfrini Pive. I'm the founder of Pace Healthcare Capital. We are uh, based in Chicago, as you can tell from the skyline. Um, and we do early stage investments in healthcare IT and, and digital health with, I would say, a, a private equity meets venture capital style. Um, I've deployed about a billion dollar uh, of capital in my career in healthcare and partnered with incredible operators like Michael Williams, whom you will hear from a bit later on our panel, to drive investments in, and support early stage entrepreneurs. Um, you've heard from our macro oracle, Stephen Burke, earlier that it's key to focus on secular trends and defensive sectors. So I'm excited to talk about um, healthcare today. Yes, I agree, innovation is the antidote to many of our problems um, that we have today. And, and hopefully we get to talk about what to do with regards to life sciences and, and healthcare technologies. We have two exciting panels to, to that extent. And before we dive into, into those, I thought I would share a few key takeaways on why investing in, in healthcare today makes sense. Um, we've put together a couple of slides just to warm up. Public equities have entered a bear market, um, and for many investors, it has created a, a reticence to investing. Um, many end up with diminished dry powder to deploy, or generally we have cold feet about figuring out where to put our own money and where to look for defensive sectors. So let me tell you about healthcare. The, I will start there. At large, it's a recession-proof sector at a very macro level. You can see here, um, with rare exceptions, healthcare decisions cannot be delayed without serious consequences. And so, therefore, overall healthcare expenditures continue to grow, even in a recession, and regardless of that. There are some strong undercurrents right now, fueling additional growth on the top. A key driver is increase of cost, and that's driven by an aging population that's, con that's expected to continue. Um, we're also seeing some side effects of COVID. Um, preventative care has been delayed in many cases, so many diagnostic tests that were supposed to take place during COVID have not. So experts actually anticipate a few additional points of growth in, in our sector. And that, that's all regardless of, I would say, the economic environment. So in an environment of uncertainty where we don't know where the bottom is with regards to public markets, the economy, recession, inflation, healthcare tends to be a very defensive sector. And if we move to next slide, I would say one of the attractiveness right now is um, it's just a cheaper market to invest into a cheaper sector. Regardless of the positive fundamentals, we get good value there. The graph here shows the S&P healthcare index versus the regular S&P index. And what we see is a decrease that's actually started at the last recession in, in 08. And we do see a decrease in valuation in healthcare um, at the onset of a recession. And it's the same in VC. We see compression of valuations right now. 
but they tend to hold better than the rest of the economy for the reasons we just discussed, strong fundamentals. Eventually, it normalizes as the rest of the economy bounces back and healthcare does not grow faster than it typically does, but it, it is there. Um, so good environment to deploy capital in. Uh, next slide. So now this could be too good to be true, right? There are some things to consider. Upon a recession, unemployment grows. And so a fraction of the people will move from having commercial insurance to no insurance at all or Medicaid, which pay a lot less for the same services. So at a very large scale, it can put pressure on margins of providers. But I would say healthcare is hyper-local. And so it doesn't apply to the same degree everywhere. And you just have to bear in mind what states are you present in? What are you investing behind? In this recession, though, I would also add that there are more people that pay out of pocket for services than in the previous one through high deductible health plans or the direct purchase of healthcare services, something we see a lot in healthcare technology, the direct uh, purchase of uh, services provided through apps. So I would pay attention actually to those apps specifically that may provide a non-essential service and directly charge the patient as we may see some pressure there. Um, now, having said that, there's also pressure on valuation and it creates concern, but markets never do a good job at integrating time lag. So lower valuation today is relevant as a concern for yesterday's investments, looking for an exit right now. So really it's the investments from 2015 to 18 that have grown and matured that we need to keep an eye on. But that entry, it just means it's a cheaper market to invest into. And um, within the next five to seven years, we know that markets will be back and we don't have the data here, but we can show that the next high point of the market is higher than the previous one. So there continues to be increased in valuation. At CDPQ, where I used to work, we used to look at investment vintages, not just times. And we had compelling data showing that actually recession vintages had the highest rate of returns in healthcare and in healthcare tech. So in, at Pace, our pipeline has um, massively expanded. We're closing our fourth investment right now in, in the mental health platform that's recession-proof, that's highly scalable with strong fundamentals. COVID, if we go to the next slide, actually accelerated the digitalization of healthcare. And we are in the early innings of digital transformation. There's a lot more to do. There are many trends um, that are interesting to invest behind. We've listed a few here. And there are many other transcendent topics um, like women's health that touch several of those points. Um, so that's it for my keynote. I wanted to give you a framework before we dive into our panel discussion for some context on where we're spending our time. Um, for our panelists, we, ha we wanted to actually include different points of view in, in healthcare tech and in life science. Um, entrepreneurs that build businesses in this environment, um, investors who invest behind them, so sort of VC, GPs, um, but also investors that invest into funds like LPs that can provide a more macro view as to what happens in those spaces. Um, uh, I will start with healthcare tech before turning to Chris Conley, who will moderate the panel for, for life sciences. Any questions before we dive into the panels? All good. Keep it going, Julie. 
All right. Um, is Eddie on the call? I think I've seen his name. Absolutely. Hi, Eddie. How are you today? How are you, Julia? Good to Doing see great. you. Good Hi to from see New York. you as well. Um, let's start with you. And uh, since we have a, a full sound panel and a short amount of time, as Mark typically does it to me, um, let's start with um, an introduction about you, Virtue Capital, and then I'll ask a couple of questions about where you're spending your time right now, and then we'll move on with the rest of the panel. Absolutely happy to. Uh, again, Eddie Vanderpart and I, I run together with Rich Sobel, um, Virtue. And Virtue is a early stage impact venture capital fund. Uh, and we invest, we invest in early stage uh, companies that have a double bottom line in a couple of different sectors. And to no surprise, healthcare is one of them. So we do healthcare, we do education, we do agriculture, and we do climate change. Uh, and interesting uh, that, you, uh, that you mentioned that, uh, that healthcare is one of the more resilient uh, sectors. And that's why I think uh, right now, in particular, we look more to healthcare than 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 to uh, some of the other sectors that are also interesting. Uh, but healthcare right now is uh, is fundamentally, I think, a right um, vertical to take very serious. And there's a there's a number of uh, interesting trends that you already mentioned that we are you know deeply looking into, and some of them, as you know, we look into with you. That, that's it. Thank you, Eddie. I was about to say, so um, Eddie is an investor of ours at, at Pace um, and, and a mentor, so I always love to exchange with him, um, including with his um, detailed questions to keep us on our toes, which is great. But there's also a lot to learn about uh, what goes on in other sectors and how other investors may approach their own space. Um, so with that in mind, actually, how do you think that virtual care may evolve in our sector of healthcare tech. And a question that I've, um, I'm facing often where I'd love to get your thoughts is, has uh, virtual care mostly played out with COVID where we all ended up having to do our visits from home or are we at the beginning of a bigger chapter? Yeah, well, the answer is not surprising. We, we fundamentally believe there were only, uh, only in the first initiative that the, development and uh, COVID has probably dramatically accelerated that transition to genies out of the bottle, so to speak. Um, and sort of early data back that up. You, you see people, patient and providers have been going back to in-person visits in the world of physical care. Um, but uh, but patients and providers have stayed with telehealth in the world of mental health and, and also other, other, other health care, wherever that's possible uh, to a very significant extent. Um, and, and there's growing evidence that virtual um, therapy, virtual healthcare, in many across many sectors and across many indications, is as effective as in-person treatment. That's obviously not okay, not true for like the dentist, but but that's um, particularly interesting for things like mental health, which is growing, uh, which is you know fast-growing uh, disorder that uh, that a lot of people uh, suffer from. Makes sense. Thank you, Eddie. Um, is Byron Asberg on, on the call? Oh, uh, I am. I, full disclosure, Hi, Byron. I was on the panel, but I, I can I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. Um, 
Uh, Byron, I'll do the same with you as I did with Eddie. It'd be great if you could give us an introduction about you and your very impressive background, um, as well as Prefix Capital, where you guys spend your time. And then I'll ask a couple of questions about um, your investment strategy in healthcare tech. Sure. Um, I'm uh, Byron Olsberg. I'm the founder and uh, managing partner at Prefix Capital. Uh, we're a seed stage um, deep tech generalist investment firm. Um, our technology sectors span everything from new fab and semiconductor technologies to energy to cybersecurity um, and to, uh, to biotech and the automation of, of digital health as well. Um, and just a background on me, I, I came up in semiconductor, built a really large custom silicon business at TI with Apple. Um, and then went to a late stage startup called Audience that IPO'd, founded a couple deep tech startups, one acquired by um, Verifone, another one by Nat Health. Uh, and then I accidentally became a VC about six years ago where I've, I've, I've spent my focus um, um, working with PhD founders and helping them build you know, important companies. Super interesting. Thank you, Byron, for joining the, the panel. Um, maybe just a, a broad question. What um, other trends that you are focusing the most on for investments in 2022? Um, inside healthcare, digital health as well, or um, ideally, yes. Um, yeah, okay, but yeah, more broadly yeah. too. If, yeah. So, it, so yeah, we're thesis-based investors. We I've spent a lot of time in digital health about four or five years ago. So I was early investors in companies like Lemonade, which were acquired by 23andMe, uh, Omada Health, um, etc. Um, these days, um, I'm spending a lot of time, we're spending a lot of time, um, which, and we continue to actively invest in um, very horizontal biotech platforms that have um, the ability to build products in um, everything from everyday commodities uh, to things like flavors and fragrances and sweeteners to low-cost therapeutics. Um, so the ability to um, uh, do really, really amazing things in therapeutics, whether that's things like peptide delivery or um, um, the ability to um, innovate in, in areas like neutrophils. And, um, and so that's where we're spending a lot of our time these days is probably more on the hard science side and less there. Um, from an a electronic standpoint, we continue to spend a lot of time around new kinds of sensors and materials, which have ramifications into digital health. So how are you able to do things like monitor glucose um, non-invasively, um, doing things like being able to take vitals and, and without contact, um, uh, and, and, and I, you know, basically enablers to this kind of um, decentralized healthcare. Um, and then I continue to angel invest still around the areas as you rightly put out. There's there's an insane amount of inefficiencies across the healthcare ecosystem. So um, still interested in things like you know machine learning getting applied to like an EHR um, and, and, and doing really interesting things to help people. Um, we're not as focused there as maybe we were a few years ago, just because there are a lot of companies, there's a lot of capital in that space. But in biotech, that's that's where we're spending most of our time, or in biotech healthcare. Yeah. Byron, you may want to talk about synthetic bio. What do you where do you see that going? Yeah, there's a lot of it. <laughs> so 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 um, Mark and I spent a lot of time. Uh, Mark actually helped in a key financing event. We're I'm on the board of a company called Manus Bio, so it's kind of in the same. Um, world of like the Ginkgos and the Zymergens and the Amaruses of the world. Um, so I, I do believe there's a really amazing opportunity to take synthetic biology um, and biomanufacturing um, and, and do really amazing things for the world, 
um, you know, outside of healthcare, like, you know, stopping deforestation, um, you know, decarbonizing, getting rid of really, really horrible um, ag practices, et cetera. Um, I, I think that the concern always with, with synthetic biology right now has been just the insane amount of companies that have been formed over the last couple of years. So, there, there, you know, there's a trend that there are more PhDs now in the private sector than there were in academia that, that flipped about four years ago, three and a half years ago. And now what we saw was maybe an oversaturation of early synthetic biology companies. Um, and particularly, there's a lot of fool's gold around there. Like, um, you know, there's a big difference between making something in a lab and obviously getting it to run in a, you know, a, you know, 40,000 liter bioreactor. And so um, I think um, that there'll be amazing companies that come out of that. You just got to be really, really careful and pay attention to key metrics like titers and oxygenation and, 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 and stuff that really matters at scale. Um, but but if you um, it is a really great place to be. And I think there's going to be, uh, you know, one of the other ramifications of it is I have no idea how the FDA is going to manage all the therapeutics that are coming to to market over the next like 10 years from all the synthetic biology platforms that have been funded over the last four or five years with the with the idea of, of, of creating new, um, you know, new kinds of medications and treatments for people. One last comment, Julie. Byron, we are going back to Europe, which reminds me of being with you at that time. That's when you guys had the LOI on the NutraSuite facility. Yes. And you would make jokes about Batman. Your darkness background, you look like Batman right now. You're like, I can't, we can't really see you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put a little light on your, on your yeah. face. Yeah. So the, the other thing, Mark, so just also is like, I'm a big believer. I, I guess the last thing I think if you do spend time on synthetic biology, you might be more, you know, I, I think a really great, great place to go is to old, go old school, early 1900s kind of American economics. Like there's a massive um, constraint in bioman toll, toll manufacturing and there will be. For the foreseeable future, so that that's actually a really interesting place to spend time. And as Mark knows, there's really amazing opportunities with like the changes in opportunity zone financing, um, stateside the need to like bring things into the soaring costs of everything, especially fuel. And so, but our manufacturing is a really interesting place. Obviously, it's not for the timid because it it does have high capex requirements. But you're seeing like the large family offices that are you know people that have like you know, are, are, that have come, made their wealth in like mines and oil, um, who are really comfortable, uh, or man, or electronics manufacturing are really comfortable. These are really interesting spaces. I think there's to be, um, a ton of good done for the world and, um, a lot of money is going to be made there over the next, you know, decade plus. Excellent. Thanks, uh, Byron. Mark, I think you wanted to ask a question to Scott, um, uh, would, would you yeah. like to, I think he has a hot um, stop at 12. Scott Speranza, do you want to just sort of quickly introduce yourself, maybe make a comment or question before you have to leave in the health tech space? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, thanks for having me, Scott Speranza, uh, CEO of HealthLock. Um, we have a service that uh, verifies technically every healthcare transaction for the consumer. Um, our go-to-market strategy is through the consumer channel, but also to employer groups. Um, we've audited over uh, a half a billion dollars worth of claims. We've, re we've returned over 200 million to our customers' recurring revenue model. Um, channel partnerships. Uh, I came from the LifeLock world, so I brought the LifeLock team back together from a marketing perspective. Um, we also do medical identity theft, uh, insurance fraud, 
spider prod as well. Sorry to cut you off, Scott, because you, you did get the prep call. We don't really talk our book on these events, but but I think but but there is a there is a problem that you're solving, right? There's there's institutions, but rightly yeah. intentionally, they are uh, overcharging. Uh, Absolutely, so, yeah. So there's a 350 billion dollar problem between uh, fraud and overcharges. So medical identity theft and insurance fraud is really taken over from the financial identity theft world because there's just so many solutions over there and there just isn't much over in the healthcare side. And then as far as the billing, it's a complicated adjudication process. Yeah, there's auto adjudication and there's negotiated rates. But again, um, there's outside data that says it's probably well over 300 billion uh, that consumers are getting overcharged. Um, out-of-pocket expenses are uh, over $400 billion a year and rising as we shift uh, costs uh, over to the employees and to the consumer through higher deductibles, higher co-pays, higher co-insurances. And so that's the, that's the problem that, that we're solving. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad one of my colleagues wanted to bring you in to meet our community. Ah. You sort of got it sort of by fire. Your, your first <laughs> but, uh, Sorry about the faux pas there, but no, uh, thanks okay. for having me. No, thank you. Thank you. Sort of fintech meets uh, health tech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back to you, Julia. Let's circle back, Scott. I think we can make a few introductions for you as well. Um, uh, I will actually now uh, move on to introducing uh, Michael Williams, who is uh, my operating partner at uh, Pace Healthcare Capital. So he's helping us with uh, sourcing deals as most awards and competition for pitch and so on want Michael on their board, not me. He's the heavyweight um, and he's helping with uh, portfolio value adds, so really coaching our entrepreneurs to commercialization. Uh, Michael, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Julia. Great discussion so far. Um, yep, I've been in life sciences about 30 years. I was in technology before that for about seven years, so it makes me officially old um, and have spent the last six years um, advising startups in both the life sciences space and in the digital health and health tech space, uh, particularly around um, customer acquisition and commercialization and launching uh, brands and products and companies. Um, and over that time, I've also been a C-suite executive um, and started uh, my own business as well. So, What um, Michael always fails to say is he's our commercialization guru. So um, for companies to figure out how to go from early adopters to the mainstream and really accelerate growth, his skill set and expertise is quite extraordinary. In fact, we've had entrepreneurs where I was encouraging, hey, have a monthly call with Michael. And the entrepreneur came back asking, can I actually have Michael on a weekly basis? Um, he His last corporate role before um, leaving Life Science to help us in healthcare tech was to be the global chief marketing officer at Takeda. Um, so he can navigate big businesses and, and, and small startups. So actually with, with that in mind, and since you're my operating partner, how can the investor community add value to the healthcare tech ecosystem? What, what can we VCs do better to help, on the one hand, our investors de-risk their investments, but also help our entrepreneurs thrive and be successful? Yeah. Um, to me, it comes down to human capital. It actually comes down to talent. Um, and I think one of the things that, that certainly we, we try to do, and I, know, and I know a lot of firms do, 
is really um, create a dense network of talent that entrepreneurs can tap into. And it, it's singularly true that very quickly, once a startup um, start, you know, continues to move forward and grow, they move into areas where they just don't have the expertise. And that doesn't really matter whether it's started by a physician scientist, a data scientist, um, even people out of uh, a business environment. They come up against things and they can really hit a wall if they just don't have the networks of talent to connect to. And, and I've very rarely seen companies go out of, uh, fail because of lack of financial capital. Unfortunately, I've seen them fail because of lack of human capital. And I think that's where we can really help. And, and one of the things I'm very conscious of, um, it's not just the people that I happen to know or have worked with. It's actually tapping into people who I'm connected to and saying, hey, who, who do you know who has this skill set? And I know, Julia, you know, one of the companies that, that, that we're currently working through investing in, um, they're not technologists by background, and yet part of their key growth moving forward is going to be a, a digital platform. And I remember when we talked to them, um, just the description and how you talk about that role um, was kind of off base. So if they'd have gone looking for that person, they would have ended up with something completely different anyway. And so I think that that's a big one. Um, and then the other thing I think, and this is just very personal to me, um, having sat on multiple sides of the table now, is um, they always used to say that, you know, feedback is a gift. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Actually, as an entrepreneur, it is. And one of the biggest gifts is just tell me if you're not going to invest in the company. Just tell me and tell me why. And, and I do think, again, we're all incredibly busy. And, and sometimes it's just easy to, to kind of skim over that, that, that conversation. And it's really, really important because people put their literally their lives and souls and, and economics into this. And, and I do think that that's something that is just it's, it's gold dust to startups and entrepreneurs from feedback from people who see hundreds of these companies over and over again and, and, and know what good looks like. And, and so that's the other thing I think that we can just continue to kind of challenge ourselves with. And it's certainly something that I'm always very conscious of. of have I gone back to, to say to somebody, hey, look, n- not us, and this is why, and, and here are people we can connect you to. And that's the final thing, um, upstream and downstream. Um, I hate the word ecosystem for some bizarre reason, but it is an ecosystem, and we are really all connected to each other. And so um, being able to make those connections, if a, if a company is not right for us because it's too early, because it's ideation, okay, fine. And, and where do we hand companies off to in terms of that next larger check investor? So those are just some thoughts, Julie. Hopefully that's helpful. Julie, I just, since he mentioned talent, and I just want to, that's why I put it on the screen, Jim Hawk leads our connecting the talent part. So. Yep. And definitely I've been impressed by the talent we can meet in the 361 from events. So. Um, we'll, we'll leverage more of those. And if folks are interested in getting involved with Michael and I at, at Pace and our deals, they should feel free to reach out as well. Thanks, Michael. Um, is Amir Lubashevsky on the call as well? Yes. Yes, Amir. Hey, Amir. How are you? Good and yourself? I'm, I'm glad we actually end the panel with you because now we've gone from, uh, VC investors, LP investors like Eddie, um, Michael with me, or um, the extraordinary Byron and, and his uh, very deep track record in, in early stage investments. And now we're going to move on to the 
the ones that actually run the show and make it happen for all of us, the entrepreneurs. So, Amir, it would be great if you could introduce yourself. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Julia, for that. You know, very excited to be on this uh, on this uh, panel. Um, well, I'm uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur for over 30 years, and I've been in technology for 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 many many years, and I was also a CEO of many tech companies uh, uh, globally. And I'm I'm specializing in uh, in integrated technologies, and uh, and also spend a lot of my my years in developing uh, developing countries. Uh, I lived in uh, in South Africa for 21 years, and from there developed a, a worldwide uh, network of uh, partners, both technology and uh, marketing marketing wise. So. I've got a I've got a lot of experience in uh, in very different stages from ideation all the way to all the way to development completion marketing exits all of that all of that has been in uh, during my during my career and you know been through ups and downs of the markets uh, and very very familiar with what's uh, uh, what's uh, what's going on this particular business that uh, that uh, I'm I'm with now uh, that started with my partners uh, uh, in 2017 actually it's uh, it's pretty much like you know started before obviously the pandemic uh, but uh, the pandemic actually proved more and more how much is needed uh, to to get a good uh, technology which will be accessible, uh, accessible to anyone and, and have a better, what we call patient, uh, patient experience and to help streamline the whole, the whole process uh, as such. So. Very helpful. And it's a space where there's been some great developments and some, um, uh, interesting failure, but it doesn't take away the actual need of being able to Diagnose people at home. This is really the the next layer of successful virtual care and, and telehealth. So it's exciting to see you pushing innovation in, in that space. So with that in mind, actually, what excites you and what scares you in the current environment from an entrepreneur standpoint? Uh, first of all, first of all, I think that the, the opportunity to uh, to really um, uh, present. Uh, this type of uh, this type of tech technologies and to simplify them and access uh, make them accessible to uh, to everyone and I, and I mean everyone I actually don't mean just like people that can can pay for it but also democratize uh, health and and give good quality diagnostic to to everyone wherever they wherever they are excites me you know so 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 to make an impact with uh, with uh, health uh, health technology uh, as such what uh, what scares me is um, is is a little bit of uh, i would say skepticism or maybe cynicism when you get um, situations like uh, like theranos that everybody heard about and so on it's 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 brushing together with it a lot of other companies which are very very good companies and they have to invest a lot of efforts and a lot of their own resources to prove otherwise, you know, to prove that it works, to prove that it actually, you know, there's other ways of doing that without uh, just taking investors' money and, 
and and, and do all this uh, all this uh, all these frauds. And I I have to say that from our own experience, we have to go a very long way to to prove that the technology works with uh, with very little money actually. And we we would like obviously to make sure that you know this situation is not going to affect all of us in the in the industry so we face a lot of uh, skepticism but but you know it's uh, it's the name of the game you know so it's uh... julia can i chime in cuz you're uh, you're also on our israel innovation um, right. meet up tomorrow and we're going to talk about why why is it that israel has 90 times per capita you know uh, VC success than than Europe uh, or even in the U.S. and I saw that you're actually your slides are are in this deck over here just so everybody knows what your your company is about you know this mobile um, diagnostic and uh, but but what we're going to talk about at least five factors whether you believe in them or not you know is army service the technical you can't find a liberal arts uh, degree and and in, in Israel, so I just that's another factor that that you have maybe over others in some ways. You know, it's a, it's a, it's actually very interesting if I can comment to that. But, uh, well, Israel really makes an effort right from the right from the government and the state side of it to to invest in technologies and to give a lot of grants. You know, this particular business that uh, that we add. Uh, received already about four non-dilutive grants from the from the government, getting us, helping us to get to very advanced uh, advanced uh, stages, and this is very very important. The other part of it is like you know this is the only um, natural resource that we can mine over here. Basically, we don't have much oil here, and we don't have any anything anything else. So we just we just go and uh, and and make an effort. To, to make the best of it uh, over here. And um, yeah, it's, it's all for the good of... Uh... Sorry, back to you, Julie. Oh, no, that's very interesting. And I would say, um, I, I mean, in, in your space, there is a lot of institutional capital in later stages, Series B oh. and, and beyond. And that's where institutionally a VC can afford to have a an expert, right? A, a PhD or somebody that has the right degree to look at your technology and, and assess is it valid or not, which was part of the issue in Theranos, which just pattern recognition of investors wasn't there to evaluate the technology. Right. But in order to get to Series B, you need to bridge seed, Series A, and get all the way there. So how can the investor community actually help you get to that level? How are you approaching that question? You're absolutely right, Julia. We feel there's a, there's a gap between uh, not just ideation, but like you're getting already into a prototype stage, maybe even some traction in the market, and then still uh, the institutional investors and maybe some large VCs would like to wait and see. You know, so would like to see how will you succeed uh, even without them uh, getting into into these investments and it's very very difficult because then you have to find other other investment uh, investment avenues you know uh, uh, maybe private angels or or others and so on so you know we 
we would we would like we would like to see um how this gap is being is being uh, fulfilled because a lot of companies um just fall by the wayside you know they just uh, they just disappear with very good ideas and very very um intelligent people and teams and human capital and they just don't come to fruition because they don't get to obviously to the b and the b and c So getting to the A is very, is very, uh, challenging. You know, getting a, a good A lead investor is very challenging. Um, yep. Maybe Mark, some thoughts around putting syndicates of investors that have mix of scientific knowledge and, and capital to look at some of those opportunities. Well, mm-hmm. many people know I prefer funds for family offices unless they can add value. But I, we have some of those funds on the call. We have Eddie Bonaparte. We have Byron. Mm-hmm. Um, and in all, just in disclosure, uh, Amir, so EFA and Orange Grove Bio are, are clients of ours. So we will hope to earn fees. And we don't do too many of these deals, but came through chains of trust indirectly through you, Stephen Burke, uh, through your Amgen. Um, um, Which is another company I would never have done, but except for you, Stephen. But Amir and I know each other going back uh, to 17 or so. So he's, he's been involved longer than I have. <laughs> well, a lot of these companies live lives, right? And yeah. uh, like running the Indian race. Well, I know we have to switch soon to, to the biotech side, and then we'll have a lot of Q&A and the, and the breakouts, and then we're back here for a debrief on what we want to do in both of these sectors event-wise or otherwise. Uh, but maybe any last comments we could ask, Julie, before we break from health tech? But it's 12.10. Any last quick comments from anyone? Mark, uh, Andrew I, I, Voss, I, I, may, may, I'm sorry. Sorry, Andrew go, go ahead, Andrew. I'll, 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 uh, yeah, I'll, it'll be I'll brief, and, and it may be better suited to a breakout, and I'll leave that to Mark's discretion. I have access to a company and involvement with a company by the name of Livy. It's uh, it's owned by a company, uh, a broader uh, shell company called Farmright. It, they're in the smart medication supplement dispenser market, and they're currently seeking capital. I'm happy to make the introduction to the CEO who's out of Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, they're currently working towards an RPM remote patient management model that involves data aggregation. I think so, this is better enter for the for the breakout of sorts. You got it. And if anybody wants to onboard a deal, you go to 361firm.com slash onboard, and we can take a look and give systematic feedback. Thank you. Uh, Eddie, last comment? Yeah, so maybe uh, maybe we'll sort of wrap it up with for, for our thoughts on the healthcare market. And in, in, when, when we came um, uh, have a discussion about selecting sort of verticals, one of the verticals we looked at obviously was healthcare and the, the amount of spend in healthcare, and it is, is known to most people, is close to 20% at the moment of GDP. If you look at it worldwide, it's by far the largest, second, follow, closely followed, followed by Switzerland at, at 12 or so. And, and it's something that scares me and excites me both about that is that it has no, you know, it has no tendency of stopping. It, it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and in, as, as a personal anecdote, I paid uh, or had a, I was presented a bill for a very routine annual test for a couple of tests that I did, two and a half thousand dollars for the test. 
mostly been taking care of by insurance. And so um, in terms of what excites me, we invested in a company that, that provides essentially the same test decentralized on your phone uh, um, with lateral flow assays for 2% of that price. Um, so it's, it's, it's something that scares me because it doesn't seem to stop growing, which is not good as human beings. Okay. What excites me is there are so many opportunities to tech, tap into that to make things more efficient. And Duncan, I love you, but can you save it for the breakout? Slide your hand up. Uh, I think a really exciting field, uh, and Julia will come back to you in the, in the town hall and you'll handle your, your breakout, uh, is biotech and it really, I find that these two worlds, you, you find the health tech investors, you find biotech investors coming into health tech sometimes, you know, it's a bit of a Rubicon to go the other way, um, unless you're a trader and, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's an environment where you need experts in, in particular. And you're, you, you've been in this field for so long, if you don't mind introducing yourself and, and I, you touch on all these execs and all these funds that are, that are out there and you have a unique perspective to introduce this panel. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. So sorry, I don't have slides. Uh, this is my first time actually presenting. So um, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Chris Conley, and I've actually been, oh gosh, in biotech for 23 plus years. Started as an executive recruiter and then launched my own company, a consulting firm, um, many years ago. And really what I do is I, I still recruit, but I also work with these startup companies to help launch them, help them grow, um, help introduce them to connections within my networks, kind of like a, a VC does, but um, on an independent basis. And that could even be, you know, even consultants or full-time positions, advisory boards, et cetera. So I'm really in the trenches with these companies, and I, I love biotech. Okay, everybody who knows me knows that, so that's just part of what I do. Um, I have, I think, a unique perspective as to this industry, I know we're really in a tough time. We're really being challenged right now, um, just like we were in 2008. But I think the difference is, is that we've had a, a very inflated market, maybe artificially, the last couple of years with all the money flowing into biotech. And so is it really a correct market that we're looking at right now if it wasn't so high? Or would this be more of a, a self-correction that we typically will see? And so, anyhow, without further ado, I'd really like to introduce um, Pat, uh, you know, starting with Pat, um, who is one of our um, panel members today, and also then uh, Rich Gans as well, secondly. Um, but Pat, starting with you, um, if you would like to introduce yourself, um, that'd be great. And just kind of explain what you do, and then we can kind of launch into some questions. Yeah, happy to. Great to be here with everybody. Good to see some some friends on the, on the call. Um, I'm Patrick Flavin. I've worked in biotech and life sciences for 25 years, uh, based in Chicago, um, really starting out as an attorney, but, um, but focused on raising capital around assets that we were in licensing from big pharma, forming a company and, and, you know, taking it through the FDA process and looking for strategic partners. And, um, you know, most of the time is spent raising money. So took a few companies public to, um, help get enough capital to develop drugs. I'm kind of the opposite of, you know, Michael Williams is, is a luminary. Um, I've gotten to know him in the uh, space and is a commercial uh, expert. And, and so, you know, most of my focus has been on early stage company building around um, assets that are emerging from a university or 
that a, a pharmaceutical company finds non-strategic. Um, so that takes me, you know, through a journey in, in Chicago. Um, as I was building companies, part of it was was building um, an ecosystem in Chicago that didn't exist compared to, say, Cambridge or the Bay Area. Um, Help launch uh, Matter was the was the executive director and founder at, at Matter, which is uh, really more of a healthcare technology and, and life sciences innovation space, trying to unite the community in Chicago. Um, and then fast forward to two years ago. Uh, launched a venture capital fund with my brother John, who I've worked with throughout my career, uh, called Portal Innovations. And the focus there was kind of recognizing the market in some of these uh, cities like Chicago, Atlanta, Nashville, where there's a ton of innovation emerging from uh, universities, but, but there's a lack of early stage seed capital uh, and a lack of wet lab space. So we built out about 50,000 square feet in Chicago and Fulton Market. Um, and we make seed investments in early stage biotech, some med tech companies, and then syndicate rounds and help our companies grow by providing them with wet lab space. Um, and then as, you know, Michael pointed out, the key element being human capital and trying to help coach these companies and connect them to the network that we've built. Um, so that's what I'm focused on. I won't go take too much time there, but that's my intro. Thank you. Rich, you're up. Hi, I'm Rich Gans. I'm a venture partner with Orange Grove Bio. Uh, fairly similar idea to Patrick, so I'll try to highlight the differences. So we are a biotech development corp, um, typical kind of hub and spoke method. The initiation of, of Orange Grove came out of a understanding that both Boston and San Francisco were pretty well capitalized and plenty of people capital, et cetera. And, uh, so we started Orange Grove with the idea that we could find deals in the Midwest in the therapeutic space and get them started, do company formation with academic medical centers, and get new ideas um, funded and capitalized and off to the clinic. So we have three therapeutic areas of interest, so autoimmune disease, oncology, and inflammation, and uh, we've are headquartered now in Cincinnati, where I was with Mark uh, just a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and uh, delighted to be on the panel. Great. Thank you. Uh, great introductions. Um, so going back to the original question that I, I posed um, and starting um, with Pat, what do you think about the market right now in biotech? Are we in a self-correcting market, or, or can you explain what your thoughts are? at least at, at this point? Is it a normal market? Is it, um, are we looking for a correction? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think we've over, <laughs> it's overcorrected to a degree, and I don't think we're in a normal market right now, but you talked about 2008. I think, you know, having been in the industry for a while, mm-hmm. even in the heyday, uh, just, you know, over the last few years, I think there was a recognition there that we were um, kind of kind of running at a f- little faster pace than was probably uh, going to continue to occur. And so I think it got, um, you know, a little, uh, overheated and, and now that correction is in place. But, you know, what we've, what I'm seeing at the early stage is there's still a, a ton of uh, capital that, that's available, um, you know, to be deployed. I think there was about 16 billion raised just in, in 2020 alone. Um, 
that's still ready to be put to work. And so I see that in, in when we're taking our companies out and trying to help them get financed. Um, it's, it's a little, it's taking longer, um, than it, than it did, but it's, it's still happening. And so, you know, what I've seen is a lot of the early, early stage, maybe pre-seed capital starting to just move downstream a little bit, existing more at that seed and then getting more involved in doubling down into series A rounds, um, instead of kind of, you know, sprinkling through many different deals. So I, you know, to answer your question, I think, it's not a normal market to me. It's an overcorrection. I hope we get back into a little bit more predictable waters. Thank you. Rich, what are your thoughts uh, in this exact same space? I mean, and what's it going to take? Maybe even getting back to a hopefully normal again. Yeah, I, uh, so I, I probably don't have as smooth a crystal ball as many others do in trying to predict that future. But I think the exciting thing for for all of us who are in the early stage biotech land is that uh, exciting ideas continue to come forward. And I'd say from my 40 years of history in this space, it's uh, really exciting times. There's just so much going on that's new and exciting and so much happening in the Midwest that um, eclipses ideas that we certainly saw in the last two decades ago. So um, although the overall market's dampened, I'd say the level of interest in early stage stuff and I think Mark pointed it out earlier, when folks um, have success in their careers, ultimately end up either with family offices or participating in the venture market, healthcare continues to be an area of focus and an area of interest because we all suffer the same uh, indignities as we get older. So um, I think it's a, it's a really exciting time for new technology, a lot of very cool stuff um, going on right now. So we're excited about it. Absolutely. Thank you. It's very interesting because pharma really stopped doing R&D many years ago, as we know. And so they're really dependent upon the biotech market or you know, biotech companies, emerging companies um, coming from, you know, the ones that you're actually creating and investing in. Um, so is this, you know, as someone that creates companies, has this changed your philosophy or your plan on for the future and how you're going to be uh, spinning up these companies? It does. Um, I think what what we're all aware of right now is that follow-on rounds are going to be much more difficult to get done. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just um, it makes two things, I think, extremely important. One is, is that we've got to be as economic as possible in trying to drive our young companies forward. Mm-hmm. And second of all, we've got to make sure that we're doing the exact right experiments to validate the technology and get to proof of concept early. So that that probably doesn't strike anybody on the call as being uh, anything too uh, dramatic or revolutionary. But uh, it, I think in times like this, when the economics are difficult, it uh, pushes you in that direction in a strong way. Absolutely. Pat, what are your thoughts? Yeah, agreed. Um, no, and, and it doesn't change the strategy. I think to your point, pharma is, you know, big pharma is much more of a sales and marketing engine. And so, um, it's more being aligned early on with understanding what those pharma companies are looking for. You see a lot of amazing innovation coming out of, you know, different universities, but it may not have a home. Um, you know, it may be kind of wandering for several years because uh, it may not be, a, be being applied toward the right modality, uh, the, the right, um, you know, therapeutic indication. Uh, but once you can get some alignment between what, 
what pharma is looking for um, and what's emerging and, you know, maybe either part of our portfolio or an area where we want to expand, then, you know, that's where uh, the success can continue to happen. Uh, but if there's not conversation at that early stage with pharma, then, you know, you miss the mark. Absolutely. I was just at Bio a couple of weeks ago in San Diego, and it was the first conference live in person in three years. And it was um, there were a lot of really interesting trends that they were talking about. Uh, definitely um, programmable medicine, um, gene and cell therapy. That was just huge. It's all sure. over the place. And it's still trending in oncology and immunology, um, AI and being able to support, you know, the, the data is really critical, real world evidence. Um, what areas are you interested in and, or where do you think it'd be good places to invest in? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go first, uh, Rich. I think what we're looking for is, you know, the confluence of some of um, what you just brought up, um, therapeutics uh, to treat disease, but at, as it may um, converge with data sciences uh, or med tech, you know, we try to look at um, new products that are emerging kind of at the confluence of those three areas. And we're not, um, we're agnostic when it comes to therapeutic area so we can cast a wider net. Uh, but that's, you know, we tend to gear more toward therapeutics and, and include a med tech components where, you know, they, they converge. Thank you. Rich, thoughts. You know, so I mentioned our three therapeutic areas, but we also have a large and growing team that's focused on cell and gene therapy. And we believe that over the course of the next decade that the level of focus and interest from both the investment community as well as big pharma and cell and gene therapy is going to continue to accelerate. We're working on a couple of very exciting platforms right now that we think could really change the course of of oncology treatment and a couple of others. So um, that's certainly an area that we think is going to be a really exciting place to play. Thank you. But yes, oncology. Uh, I, someday, hopefully, we'll have uh, that more of as a treatment and prevention. There's a lot of talk about prevention actually in oncology too um, that was being done. And But you both mentioned big pharma, and which is really interesting because they were there in force and they were scheduling partnering meetings all over the place. So rather than uh, companies going IPO or through SPACs, it's going to be huge in mergers and acquisitions. And that was like the talk of the conference. What are your thoughts, starting with you, Rich, on that? Well, so, so it's interesting that you say that. We had a call with one of the big pharma players, and um, I, I asked uh, about um, – bio and, and what their experience was and they had 75 people that went now by their own admission they weren't sure that all 75 of those people that really should have been there um, i think there's so much pent-up demand right now for people right. to go to conferences live by the way i hope chris you didn't get COVID. apparently it turned into no. <laughs> it turned into a super spreader event so oh, but, no. yeah uh, unfortunately a lot of uh, folks that i talked to picked it up out there but um anyway uh, i i do think it's, it's always a bit of a puzzle. So I was at Abbott for 20 years and had a pretty good kind of lens on what we were looking for. Uh, obviously that changes over time. So it's our responsibility and Patrick's as well to, to try to stay current on what people are thinking about and in the halls of big pharma, what therapeutic areas they're interested in and really what the evidence is going to be required for them to invest because they've abdicated the responsibility for early stage R and D and they're, 
largely have turned into, as I think Patrick said, um, commercial engines and, and certainly phase three engines. You know, to do big multi-country uh, clinical trials is something that they do extremely well, and it's, that's just an area that we don't uh, view our capabilities as being able to add much value. Great response. Pat, what are your thoughts? And yeah, no, I mean, all great points, and I, I agree. It, to me, I, you know, the trend of, of, of going public, you know, prior to IND, um, was certainly hot over the last few years, you know, you phase one products and things like that. Great that companies can get public, but you know, you're still a long, long way. And, and that's a lot of equity capital to raise to get to the finish line. Um, and that's why, you know, I think the, I always favorable toward the big pharma partnership um, early on, uh, you know, that it, it, they're hard to achieve. I, I think that sometimes it feels like, well, yeah, that's a no brainer. Everybody would want to do that. Um, it's not so easy to do that. And, and, you know, Rich being at Abbott, as you well know, you can't just walk up to the front door of Abbott and, and walk through the door and <laughs> think you're going to get a meeting there. It takes many, many attempts. And, um, but that trend is one that I think is valuable for the industry because as I talked about earlier, it drives that alignment toward, um, you know, what is pharma ultimately going to put their shoulder behind and rev up that engine to get commercialized. I think I've worked on a few companies where you're kind of going it alone and you're taking it through phase three and then you're going out to pharma to look for a partner who can help uh, market the product once, once it's commercialized. And, you know, you're kind of going out a little late in the game because what you were working on five years ago in the clinic isn't as hot as it once was. Uh, so again, if you've got that big pharma muscle at your side, uh, it's a lot better than having, you know, a 50 uh, hedge fund investors calling you every day uh, as a public company. It's so true. Definitely. Um, yeah, there were some. Oh, Chris, sorry. Go ahead. I was just thinking these, they're both in Chicago, Cincinnati. Maybe they could talk about, you know, as I recall it, like 100, it's 100 plus billions being invested through the coasts and like 30 in the, in like the, the heartland. Uh, but there are a lot of great university tech. I'm just curious if, if, if you, how you see the, the landscape vis-a-vis -vis the coasts. Yeah, so I, I could start on that one. So that really was the, the, uh, the germ or the, the beginning notion of why Orange Grove was started. We saw this huge inequity and in the amount of money being spent. Certainly NIH has spent a lot of money in the Midwest and elsewhere. But the the availability of talent to get young companies formed and started and off to the towards the clinic uh, was was really the area that valley of death that everybody talks about. Um, we thought that was a just a huge opportunity for us to to be in an area that's less competitive. Uh, we think the science is every bit as good, and I'd say that the level of narcissistic personality disorder that you see on the coast is. Um, muted in the Midwest. So. Not to say it's absent, but it is certainly muted. That's great. Yeah, yeah, great. Exactly. No, I think the way we tried to approach it, similar model, obviously, we spotted the opportunity. Um, but we, I try, you know, we try not to be um, like independent of the coast either. We spend a lot of time in Boston, a lot of time in San Francisco. And as we're helping our companies raise capital, the syndicates we're building it's not all Midwest, you know, investors. We're, we're bringing in coastal investors who 
um, over time, you know, we develop a partnership with them. It's not like they don't want to invest in these opportunities in the Midwest. It's just you guys know what your day looks like and bandwidth. And if you've got enough to look at um, where you are, you're not going to pick your head up. Um, so we have to go to them and kind of get their attention and then develop longer term partnerships where, you know, they're comfortable making investments in 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 life sciences companies that are working out of our space and they know we're kind of watching them and helping them grow. Um, and so they feel better about that, that, you know, they don't have to be right in their own backyard. Great points. Um, so looking forward, maybe five years, where do you think um, areas uh, that are not today, maybe, but down the road would be to invest in? Any thoughts on that? <laughs> I wish I knew. Yeah. <laughs> Now I think oncology and you know CRISPR CAR T and all those those there's still I mean it feels like it's been going on for several years now as it has but it still seems to me to be you know we're at the forefront there there's so much more coming behind that that I'm excited to see not only that and then you know immunology I think with COVID everybody kind of woke up and and realized um, you know there needs to be more time spent there and I'm um, things like antibiotics, which, you know, they kind of come and go out of favor. But, um, you know, I, I look at oncology still being a huge opportunity and then, you know, immunology and, and some of the new vaccine technology that got supercharged uh, over the last year and a half. Absolutely. COVID gave us a front row seat uh, on that. So that was very interesting. There's also a trend that uh, was highlighted to infectious disease and universal vaccines, which is really interesting. Um, behavioral health big as well. Rich, um, same question to you. Uh, looking forward five years. Where do you yeah, think? so I mentioned cell and gene therapy. Uh, we just think that that intersection, more broadly, immunology, um, as Patrick said, there's, there's still a huge amount of application to think about. When you think about the early pioneers of, of cell therapy, focused on CAR-T and the like, um, it still only has an applicability for a small number of patients. So we we see that as an area of excitement, and we think that the regulators will ultimately uh, pick up on that and, and make sure that they're doing the things necessary to propel some of these things forward. I, I think the, the um, overcast on gene therapy will eventually dissipate. Um, I think we now know that we've got to be very careful in early stage development of gene therapy that we're not taking a situation and making it worse. But um, that's an area that we're we're pretty excited about and have a we now have a really great team of cell and gene therapy experts that um, that we're working with to work on early stage deals. So um, that'd be my thinking. It's one of my favorite areas. Uh, behavioral health is one. And there is kind of a, a comeback in investing in CNS, uh, neurodegenerative diseases, and it, looking at different targets rather than, you know, your beta amyloids and such. So, uh, and there's the combination of both companies combined and using AI in order to target drug treatments. That was something that there's a lot of talk about at, at Bio. So I think we're heading into an exciting future. And I agree with you on gene and cell therapy. They're both amazing areas to work within. So thank you. I think I'm at time. So I just put a, a note in the uh, chat that we're going to move to breakouts. The way we do this, this is a long history that goes back to 2005 with Dennis and alumni in Michigan and then 
uh, keep evolving. The 360 is roundtables. Let's get everybody's view. So, you know, as we will have one breakout on health tech, the other one on biotech. Everyone introduces themselves, you know, 15, 20 seconds, depending on how big the group is, could be 30 seconds for a small group. Uh, and then we move on to how we can help each other. So, you know, Chris Conley, I'm in Portland. I do consulting. I, you know, I'm involved with recruiting, um, yada, yada. And then everyone's talking and maybe they, they want to, they need Chris's skills or, you know, how do I get a hold of you? It's just exchange information. They move it to the substance and they move it to what do we want to do as that group or, and then, uh, in terms of next steps, events, um, at every event that we have, global event, the conference, we have industry um, panels and breakouts. But we can do all kinds of just health-related events that if the community wants to do that. So I think Anessa's set up or will soon set up these breakouts. And uh, if you don't know how to do this, um, you'll see there's – depends on what device you have. There's the uh, three dots, and you go to pop up the breakouts. And Through to force as to taking notes um, in sorry, mental, a mental or physical. This, like, what did you observe uh, takeaways from the biotech group? I think that there's still a lot of interest in it, as there should be, and and that, that's really hopeful for me um, to see because it's an area that I think all of us are really passionate about. And it looks left definitely like um, oncology, immunology, and behavioral health sciences are really going strong. I think there's a lot of interest there still, and that's well, exciting. Our, our community skews can do, so that might not be reflective of the uh, environment, but <laughs> but that's good. That you, but we'll feed it, feed energy off of it. Um, I think it's all positive. Julia, thanks. So, so I guess by the number of people that joined in, there is strong interest for healthcare technologies. We were about 20 participants. Um, and took the time to all introduce ourselves, so that um, kept us quite busy as we went through the breakout session. As always on a 361 firm event, there is a lot of talent, and so I'm going to try to just give you an overview from entrepreneurs that talked about their technology that they're very passionate about, that they build in, for which they are working to raise capital, and the easy things and difficult things about that. We also had VCs or investors in VCs that have more macro views, family offices, professors. So a wealth of talent. And we eventually had um, 120 seconds to hold a discussion. So uh, in that short discussion, um, the question was mostly about what is it we can do as a community? And I think the breakout room does that is introducing ourselves, getting back in touch, I've already got four emails in my mailbox exchanging with folks that I haven't seen in a while that I want to connect with about either looking at businesses together or investing with them. And that's, I would say, what the magic of those events is about. Um, so looking forward to the next event and, and uh, further digging into um, healthcare technologies. And then let's open it up. Any, and any other comments, questions or suggestions? as to what we can do either this kind of an event or separately or differently. So to scratch the surface. Yep. Hey, Mark, it's Rob. Just a quick comment. Um, uh, 
I think I think Simon from the breakout I was in chimed in a little bit from I think Europe, but um, it would be nice to get more international uh, flavor uh, to this, just given the importance of both healthcare and um, supply chain and and you know lessons learned in um, in in, um, in the vaccine uh, the COVID vaccine, um, and then I think to the extent um, that things touch. Um, um, uh, like cyber, or cyber, cyber, like homeland security or the defense areas, there's a lot, healthcare goes into those areas as well as devices. It seems like there's an underrepresentation of those type of companies. We have a defense event coming up in mid-July. Um, so we'll, you'll, you'll see that. And we're actually, we're, I think as we go relaunch our tour through, through Europe and Middle East and then beyond, we'll, uh, we'll do better there. But I need your help, Rob. You know, invite your international friends. Any other, well, we have we have Israel tomorrow, by the way, uh, and we had Israel here today with, uh, uh, as you saw. Other comments, questions? Mark. Yes. Thank you. Um, I, I also mentioned this in the Elstek with Julia. Uh, for me personally, and also for what we are doing in EFA, it, uh, it would be interesting and I think valuable to learn uh, more about the impact investment. Um, and um, I know that, that I'm following that in the last years because it's something which is, you know, core, basic course in EFA. But um, um, specifically, we, we didn't see much investments from this area, we didn't succeed to get investment from the impact, although we are in the impact area. So it would be interesting to learn about this and, and know what is going on. And we, we host uh, every six months or so uh, an impact event. Um, in fact, Julio helped co-lead that, that panel um, in uh, New York. And we'll, uh, we, and we did that in Chicago uh, again. So if you, um, I'll just show you. It's useful here. The next one will be, uh, this is just our YouTube channel. So if you look up the word impact, um, I don't know how many videos you're going to see. 78 videos, recordings, um, full recordings or highlights. And you can sort of see who, who said what. Um, so to us, the next one is, is in Michigan. It's two days, Grand Rapids and Detroit. So we're trying to hit certain issues, but, but then you're, you're right in the, in the zeitgeist because then we go to Ann Arbor and talk about innovation and venture. And that's really where in, where impact, the most sustainable impact, but society needs help with like, uh, human trafficking, uh, you know, people got you know, up coming out of foster care, uh, access to education, nutrition. Um, that's what we're going to talk about in Grand Rapids and Detroit. And then, you know, if we can find, and actually we saw last Tuesday, an interesting platform that helps create roadmaps and upscaling of prisoners to get out of prison. So we look for those kind of things we can invest in that's, you know, for scalable solutions. Um, so uh, October 13, 14, 15. And if you're, and if you're a Michigan fan or pretend to be a Michigan fan, you can come to the Penn State game on the 15th. Okay. We consider that. Okay. Well, but the key is you'll meet, you'll meet a guy like Peter Borish, um, who's, you know, he's behind, um, 
He's a Michigan uh, alum, and he's been behind uh, the founding of Robinhood, not the the foundation, uh, the foundation side, not the stock platform that gives 100 million, sometimes more, 200 million a couple years ago to charities. Um, so there's a, we're trying to find the nexus between the philanthropic interests, trying to optimize that with impact. But you'll, okay. we'll, we'll be in touch. Anyone else? Anything you that you learned today that you didn't know, or or what exactly? Maybe something something interesting that you learned, or otherwise that what you want us to do. Mark, I have a question about Israel tomorrow. Is that is it appropriate time to ask that? Yeah, go for it. Is it is it a macro view of all investments Israeli? Is it geopolitics? Is it the whole kit and caboodle? It's, you know, an hour and a half scratching the surface of all of the above. You know, we're going to talk about, um, you know, where Israel's been big time, you know, big picture. Then, uh, you know, this is the slide. It's amazing, right? The, the How they over, you know, the punch above their weight and why. Right. What's the what's the why? And these are some of the issues, you know, everyone's got this, you know, just you can read them. Uh, and then we'll talk about some of the you know, companies. You, you're meeting one of them here. It's in the health space and you'll have others. And then. To know, you got to sort of also go to Israel, which is what we're you know, we've hit 20 countries out of your one of our next the next wave. Um. You know, so at Cattle, Amdocs is the largest software company. They have a venture VC, corporate VC arm. Catalyst is on their fund four, doing secondaries and primaries. You've got and then a couple founders. And I think that'll just sort of kick, you know, catalyze doing more there. And I think it's an interesting bridge. I'm not sure it's for technology or innovation systems, but this, this whole GCC, the parts of the GCC bridging to Israel right now is an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, Dubai, Dubai is dynamic and curious about that whole, how that bridge is playing out. And I've seen a lot of interesting other, you know, Jordan and, and a few others. But, uh, anybody who wants to comment, I don't know if Asher's still on. There's Asher. He's the guy to talk about it. Yeah, I'm still on and, uh, it's going to be interesting tomorrow because it's the point of view of, of, you know, interestingly, people who've immigrated to Israel. Uh, and one, uh, the, one of the CEOs speaking tomorrow spent 20, uh, in the Israeli military as a, as a general. Um, then he, he's going out on the open to apply to, uh, commercial. Asher, sorry. Tomorrow you got, you have to have better Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm on my phone now right now. You're absolutely correct. No, no, it's okay. But he's, yeah, it's he, but he's right. He, we didn't want to like overwhelm. Just, we just wanted to sort of get going. We could, and and there's a, tons we can do as it relates. Yeah. To yeah, and, and I'm happy to connect with everybody who wants to learn more about the Israeli ecosystem. I've been deep in the trenches for nine years uh, in venture and tech, uh, working with hundreds of startups and venture funds. 
Um, so, and I, I actually, my perspective is I, I live both in the U.S. and in Israel. I was really born, but I lived 13 years in New York. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm definitely uh, a good person to connect with when it comes to the Israeli ecosystem. <clears throat> That's right. And and when and Asher and I are partnered on on a number of mandates, including EFA. Other, uh, I mean, I'm just seeing this on the bio side. I'm, 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 seems like that there's a, I mean, venture in general, people move to liquidity. They're, they're, but arguably, this is the time to, to invest. So I don't, I think that's an interesting conundrum. Um, but uh, that's probably a discussion for another day. Well, I have a question on that, Mark, and maybe it's an idea for a panel. But, um, you know, on a PA basis, you know, I've got a few things in that space. And, you know, one of them, I mean, I just bought some recently, literally at the cash on the balance sheet. And, you know, in any decent market, these people would never raise the money at the prices they're talking about here. And I sort of think the market's gotten the biotech, you know, and a lot of it's you know, cancer drugs and things like that. I think they've gotten it confused with the Cassie, Kathy Woods stuff. You know, the companies that were trading with sales, but unprofitable. And actually the profile of these things isn't a growth tra- trajectory. It's a binary trajectory. It either works or it doesn't work. And, you know, you could put the thing in uh FanDuel as well as anything else, right? I mean, it um, so, you know, really it's like if there's 10 of these things, what are the odds of any one of them working? It's not really about this trajectory that the market has punished. And, um, I, I, I suspect it's going to make it really difficult for promising companies that aren't yet public to raise money because there are businesses that are already up and running with a lot of data, you know, with a management team that people have been able to watch that have already gone through an IPO process, which itself is sort of a learning experience. They're just so cheap in the secondary market that why would people spend money on a, you know, sort of a new opportunity at the price an entrepreneur wants to get paid? And, and so, I mean, to me, that would be a really interesting discussion. And, you know, we might all figure out how to make some money in this space. And probably that stuff probably needs to recover before people are really going to go in you know, in a big way, you know, look, I'm an amateur at this, unless, so I don't think for a professional. Unless, I would argue, there's something wrong with some of those companies for that for that to be happening, right? So it could be, you know, it could be there for a reason, uh, but, or, you know, I think some of these BCs and Ds are overpriced, but it may be a good time to found some of these companies and get your, 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 the talent could be there to be had. There's, there's, there are plays. I mean, I, I'm looking at you, Rich, but I know I'm, feel like I'm talking my book when I look at you. But, um, but this is, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong, Duncan. T- take the point. I'm uh, throwing it out there. It's not. Yeah. No. Well, I think uh, you, you made a good point when it comes to financial considerations in terms of risk reward investment and, and, you know, the level of risk investors take. But I think a lot of the investments are made based on the company's mission and the real problem they're trying to solve. And investors are are not just looking at financials and revenue. They're looking at, you know, what what is it speaks to them. And and oftentimes it's it's uh it's it's more of an investment because they believe in the company 
and less so because of it's a financially uh, sensible investment. Um, and, and, you know, and, and not come from a place, coming from a place of, of reducing the, the risk. Well, I think you, you might be speaking to something different, right? Um, then that, that it goes back to maybe that impact, uh, point that Yoel was Correct. making. I know, I know several families who gave the oncology research because the wives said, we want to see this solved. And they really weren't looking for a return, um, per se, per se. Um, but it, you could argue that's an impact of investment. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That definitely is, Mark. I think part of, you know, some of the smaller companies, they went public so quickly. They, they built the company fast. They don't have any clinical data. It's more of a concept. Uh, and a lot of these are actually from venture capital firms. Uh, the others that are not that went public quickly, they've just not been able to really show the data that is necessary. And, you know, these are really early on. And, and the IPO market was just absolutely insane the last two years. It's come to a grinding halt right now, which is the reason why pharma is really looking at mergers and acquisitions instead. And, uh, you know, Seagen, for instance, Merck is looking at acquiring them because their CEO had was forced to resign um, uh, domestic violence, unfortunately. And, you know, so they, they will see, I think, the flaws in some of these companies. Um, and Seagen has great products that are approved, actually. But everybody is really taking a hit in their stock for one reason or another. I One of the thoughts, because I just was listening to a presentation by Norbert Affian uh, of Flagship Ventures with Brad Lonkar. And he'd asked um, Norbert, Brad, Brad had asked um, Norbert what his thoughts were on, you know, on the market right now. And really, it was interesting because Norbert had said, we have seen the biotech industry inflated to such a high level for the last couple of years that had it not been so high, it wouldn't have looked like it was such a drop right now. And so it's not really a market correction necessarily. It's more of an understanding of you were they were so high where it hasn't been before. And now it's just kind of coming back to center again. So it's not necessarily that these companies are bad. It's just that they're not able to really, you know, give the investors a return on their investment or their data is so far out because they went public so early you know, to, to jump on that IPL bandwagon. Take a look at the SPACs as well. I think that that's another area because they have two years basically to invest in a company and to take them public. And I'm seeing companies that even were spun out by third rock that are not going public. And so these SPACs are having to fold and return the money to their original investors. But what happens is the, the, that desert that someone alluded to, yep. I guess, Rich, you know, that that starts to become even drier because the VCs have to support their current portfolio to get them, mm-hmm. you know, through, through their desert. And then you see innovation. Either you see you see entrepreneurs doing more with less or they actually will do something with a lower valuation or some combination. But uh, uh, can I ask, Amisha, you're, I think I can't, I mean, you talked about something. You, you strike me as the, as the founder type as well. Um, or a co-founder advisor, maybe, you know, what, what are your reflections on the event uh, and, and this discussion? Um, 
I mean, I think overall, it's hard getting new products to market. Um, I agree with you on the pharma, big pharma, big medical device companies wanting to acquire products instead of developing them. Um, funding always has to be the right time, the right period. Um, new products, like I feel like ours are, where there's not a lot of other options out there, really finding those early adopters that are more the innovators and don't care about the evidence, they see the long-term vision and the need for it is kind of sometimes hard, but it's also a lot of fun. And, and what this, you, you described apparently just one of the companies you're involved in, I, I heard afterwards, you, the, the part that you take the fat and then you re, sort of repurpose it. I was calling it core blood for fat. Yeah. but um, Yeah, we were talking about it being like core blood. Yeah, I'm talking about that one. Um, it's, a lot of people think fat is bad, you know, any all those notions. But ironically, our in our startup, it's a little bit different. Academic institutions and uh, the military installations, they know fat is very high-quality tissue. So um, usually those are the last ones that you get um, to get on board sometimes with new technologies. Ours have been the 100% opposite from that one because they know the quality of the tissue is great. Now, the uh, the device itself, they we had to, it needed some time to take prove it out, um, but people were interested the second that they started to try the product. I've not seen a startup that has 115 peer-reviewed publications, and we did not pay for the evidence. It's all independent studies from well-respected institutions. But I think finding people that will give it that shot can be easy, and it can be difficult. Fair enough. Any other, anyone else want to comment? It's a great panel, uh, Mark. I really enjoyed it. Yes, so it's, good. Thank you for that. Well, good, because you guys get to come back tomorrow. Yeah, we'll see the, the Israeli take on all this. Um, so I know, I know it's going to be a good one. Well, look, this is just, these are all stepping stones. So we'll, uh, Thank you for everybody for enlightening us and if you do